Hey, good morning, everybody. You sprang forward. Good for you. Why does, it, why does it feel so much like falling backwards? I feel like it's, we're in the opposite. So why can't, can we just, why couldn't we have just been weird? Could we have not just left the time alone? I would have, I think I would have just loved that a little bit. Yeah. And how about, can we just have one class basketball again? No. Okay. I just thought I was going to go with it. Okay. Hey, before I start today, I just wanted to kind of bring to your attention something that we're going to be doing here uh, at church. We're going to do another combined service coming up here in April. If you were with us around the time of Thanksgiving, you would have remembered a time that we did a combined service at 10 o'clock and we did a meal to follow after that. Um, we're going to call those things our family feast. And so this April, on the 9th of April, we're going to begin and do our first annual spring family feast. It starts at 10 a.m. and it has a meal to follow. We've got a lot of Easter-ish type foods. We'd love for you guys to be there. Consider this uh, a personal invite from me to you to join us uh, at this event. Uh, these things are, are kind of a big deal to me, and I think they're a big deal to our church because I think in very much and in, in very significant ways, our health as a church is determined by our health in our relationships. And so uh, I would ask you to join us. Uh, if if you know anything about events like these, we need a lot of help in those things, and we need 20 to 25 volunteers to kind of help us put on this event, uh, and you can sign up to help us right behind you in the foyer. We could use your help, and, and take note of the dessert information about that day as well. Hey, so today we're going to wrap up our series on the parables. Just really have loved going through these two, the Proverbs and into parables. Today we're going to look in the Gospel of Luke, look in the 18th chapter. We're going to discover a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, two very different people today. Uh, we're going to watch them approach the temple and pray, and we're going to study their, uh, their approach. And my hope today is that you uh, might come out of here identifying some of the core things that we see present within the Pharisee and some of the core things that we see present in the tax collector, and then that we might, because of those things, do some personal evaluations about ourselves. And then I want to remind us today what the basis of our salvation hinges on and why that is important, not just for us, but why it's important to understand who we are and our positioning as we relate to other people. And so... It is well for us to start by picking up the text today. Let's join together reading the Gospel of Luke in the 18th chapter, starting in verse 9. This is what it says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they themse and themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give all of that I, I give a tenth tithe of all that I get, but the tax collector was standing far off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so right in the beginning, this author, Luke, who's, who's a historian, and he's really thorough, he, he lays out an audience. Most parables don't have this. We know who Jesus' intended crowd is. He says it's to those who have confidence in themselves that looks 
uh, themselves in their own righteousness and looks down at other people. So most likely Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees that are in the crowd around him at this point. We know this. Pharisees would be much like a political party that we would see today. Only smaller. They're not big like these political parties in our country are. Uh, and they, they would not have been concerned about politics. They would have been more concerned about rig- religious rituals and rule following. Now, I think it's interesting here, Jesus is going to speak about Pharisees in kind of a deflammatory way while they're in the audience. I think that's quite unique. I mean, it's like when your wife is talking about you to other people and you're in the room like, dude, I'm, I'm here. I mean, what's going on? And so he's going to be, uh, he's not going to be nice to them. So let's look into this, this parable and look at these two different types of people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, the two major characteristics of a, of a Pharisee would, would be this. They were obsessed with their obligations to obey the laws of purity, tithing, and Sabbath observances. And the second thing is, as a Pharisee, they would have emphasized the, the, the written law and the oral traditions of the Jewish faith. And that's a little bit different. What, what that would mean is this. We have a book, a Bible, it's 66 books. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the Torah. That's what the Hebrew faith would recognize as the Torah. There is a lot of written commands and laws in that book. They also would have re- uh, recognized the oral law which expounds upon or brings greater depth into the written law. So between those two written codes, one written, one oral, they would have tried their best to obey somewhere in the neighborhood of 613 different commands. It would have been about 248 positive commands, like do this, and 365 different commands that were negative in connotation, like don't do this. Then they wouldn't just try to observe them, they would obsess over following these things. And this sort of obsession to obedience of a law, where you're just trying to look good against the standard, begins over time to produce an ego about your ability to follow these rules. And look, this isn't unknown to us. There are many of us, including myself, who have transcended above things that can have this kind of attitude of piety where we might look down upon other people. So here's a perfect example for you. Uh, My wife is the better half of this relationship, just so everybody knows, and it's not even close, all right? But believe it or not, I am a rule follower and regimented in it. My wife does not follow the same convictions about following some rules that I do. And one of the areas that this flares up to the, into the most is when we go to movie theaters. When you walk into a movie theater, you will see a sign on the door or a freestanding sign that says what? It says this, doesn't it? No outside food or beverages in the movie theater, right? And listen, that is all I need. That might as well have Malachi 6.17 under it, because I'm obeying that thing. My wife does not live in the same universe that I do. She does not feel like her need to obey these rules should happen. She believes that dollar stores were put next to movie theaters for her to smuggle candy into the theater, right? Okay, yeah, a lot of you, yeah, you're applauding, okay. Don't applaud my wife, she's not even here right now, she can applaud her, okay? This is not helping her at all. Okay. 
If you would look at my wife's purse when she walked into a movie theater, it would look a lot like this picture right here, okay? Now, I'm 100% uncomfortable with this. I've learned to live with it. Uh, but here's the deal. I literally find myself scanning the theater as we walk down the hallways, looking for that staff who's going to come up and bust my wife for bringing in food. And you better believe that I'm just going to keep walking. I don't even know this lady, right? Now, I'm a, now whether, listen, listen, whether or not I eat the candy that she brings in is not the offense. All right, she brought it in herself, all right? Now look, I can get a superiority complex if I'm not careful because of things like these. I literally, I know it's silly, I can find myself looking down on my wife. And look, I know the vast majority in here are candy uh, sneaking heathens, just like my wife is. And my ability to transcend this stuff somehow makes me feel superior. But listen, my ability to follow a particular set of rules does zero in dealing with the corruptness of my heart. I just can appear to look better, but for Christ, my heart is as filthy and dirty as anyone else in here or anyone outside of this room. And this is what happens with the Pharisees. They get so consumed with following rituals and rules and traditions that they elevate themselves to a place where they believe that they are better or cleaner than the people around them. And look, by appearances, if you were in the first century and you saw a Pharisee, you would think that they were a holy people. They looked the part. But inside of this parable, we find three, what I'm going to call ungodly acts that we're going to pull out that we see demonstrated in these Pharisees. This Pharisee prays, and he says the word five, or I five different times, five different times. He says, I thank you that I'm not like most people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of what all I get. I mean, this is even a prayer. It's a gloat to God. Like, look how good I am. Jesus has very unkind words to the Pharisees in multiple segments of the gospel. And in Matthew 23, this is what he says about the Pharisees. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Now, phylacteries would be these leather-bound boxes that we've talked about these things that they would wear on their head or their arms, and the bigger that they would be, the better that they would look. They would put pieces of scripture inside of them, and these fringes would be tassels that they would wear on the four corners of their robes uh, to make people uh, remind themselves to obey the law. And of course, with these things, the more vibrant the color, the longer they were, the more holy that you looked. And so these Pharisees will do everything it takes to appear to look good. Everything they do is meant to impress people to think they're holy. And so when you get past face value of the Pharisee, we see these people to be deeply flawed. And it would be natural for us to look at these Pharisees and think that they are fools. And, and they are fools. But I caution us to be too quick to judge these people. I would be cautious to, to, to quickly dismiss them as heretics and hypocrites. 
Because I, I think some of the things that these Pharisees do are not unlike some of the things that we do. We certainly, too, display some of these things that this Pharisee is about. And so, one of the three things that this Pharisee practices is this sin of comparison. The sin of comparison. What is the first thing that he says? It's like, Lord, thank you that I'm not this tax collector. Like, I'm not this guy. Like, I love me some me. Like, I love me, Lord. And so, this first ungodly act is this act of comparison based upon being better than somebody or even it could be in being less than some things. And we communicate things like this all the time. We, we say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a murderer either. Or not, I've made a mistake, but I'm not Jim Bob over there. His life's a mess. And look, I want to expand real quickly, maybe in the length here, more than I will in other sections about comparison because I think it's a sneaky sin. I don't think that we think of the term comparison and think of it uh, in, in the area of sin. Now, is it proper and good for you to see a brother and sister who's being really diligent in something, doing something right, and be motivated to say, Lord, I, help me, help me to, 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 to work in this way? Yes, absolutely, it is proper. But when you elevate that person into a place that you want to be them, you've elevated them into a place that they never belonged. The Lord would remind us that all of our heart and all of our love and all of our strength should be dedicated to Him. We should not put anyone above him, not put anyone above us. And then there's, there's sometimes that it's okay if, if we see somebody else who's been dealt a difficult hand in life to, to well up with gratitude, Lord, thank you for the season of my life. Thank you that I'm not struggling with this right now. But it borders into sin when you believe that somehow you've achieved some sort of higher existence than this person. It becomes sin at that point. Now, I have a good friend who, and I love this, it's marked my life. He has uh, adult children that are out of the house, and he was telling me that when his kids were younger, when they would come home and they would say things like, I, I wish that I could be like Judy, she, the blah, 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 whatever it is, he, he would have a punishment or a consequence for them. And if they ever came home and said, man, did you see what Becky was wearing today? and elevate themselves, they would have a consequence and a punishment. He wanted to hammer home the sufficiency of God's design in themselves, that you were created to be you. And it's not about comparing yourself to anyone else. You are to be you. And we would be better spending our time going close to the Lord in our design, not somebody else's. I think that's, I think it's a beautiful example. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians that each one should test their own actions, then they can have pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to somebody else. Comparison, friends, it's a sneaky sin that we have to keep our eyes on, that it doesn't develop or root into something that we don't want it to be. And the second thing that this Pharisee does is he self-justifies. The the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, fasting would be abstaining from food or drink, and in the Jewish law, it would command the Jews to fast one time a year. We know that holiday. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called Yom Kippur. It's in September, at the end of September. It is the Day of Atonement. That would be the only day that the Jews were commanded to fast. Any other types of fasting would have been personal preferences 
at this point. And this Pharisee is quite bold in the fact that I fast twice a week. And look, he would not be fasting in private. He would not be fasting in private. He would fast in public. And Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And here's why. On Mondays and Thursdays, the Jewish marketplace was open. And people would travel from way far away to come into the town, and they would get their supplies for the week. And of course, the Pharisee would use that as an opportunity to find the biggest crowd that they could get so that they could gaze upon them as they struggle in misery in their fasting, that people might say, oh, what a holy person this is, withholding himself from food and water. It's crazy. And so the, the Pharisee in this is reminding God just how good he is. Look, I fast. I give a tenth. God, let me tell you why you need me. Let me tell you why you need me. Jesus, again, speaking about the Pharisee earlier in Luke 16, he says, he says this about him starting in verse 14. He says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an ab abomination in the sight of God. All of these things that the Pharisees did were just show. They believed that their religiousity would be what gained them salvation. They were all about looking good. Notice nowhere in this Pharisee's prayer does he communicate any sort of dependency on the Father, any sort of asking for forgiveness or mercy. He just flat out telling the Lord, I'm good, God, and you're lucky to have me. The third thing that this parable teaches us about this Pharisee is that he kind of acts in a way that's prideful. It's pride. That's his, this aspect of pride is present in him. And pride is defined as a feeling or a satisfaction of oneself in their accomplishments. And look, innately, it is okay to be satisfied and prideful of who God has made you and, and the things that you have done, but it should never elevate in us into a position that we're above somebody. Humility has to be balanced in pride. The kind of pride that we see present in this text is not that kind of pride. This pride is a foolish or corrupt sense of one's worth, personal value, stature, or accomplishments. And when we read this parable, this Pharisee oozes this. He just loves himself some me. And maybe there are some of us in this room that, that we struggle with this. Maybe we elevate ourselves and love ourselves in subtle forms or in openly brash forms. I love me some me. And this kind of sin, pride, is absolutely the root of all of his comparison and all of his just self-justification. Paul would remind us in Romans, in the 12th chapter, when he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. G.K. Chesterton, who's a, a pastor and an author, said that if I had to give just one sermon, I would preach against pride. And someday, you know, hopefully, we'll, I'll be able to preach just about pride, because it is a killer, but it's not today. But I do want to remind us that pride is almost always the root of every sin that we have in our life. 
It is a belief in my own authority that I'm better than everybody else, that I can handle this myself. I can do all of this myself. And it prevents us from reaching out for other people, asking for help. And it even prevents us from stepping into the messes of other people's lives because they're not good enough for us. Make no mistake, pride is a killer of faith. It's a killer of faith. And so now on the other side of this, we have the tax collector. And now many of you would, would have known what a tax collector would have been in this culture. And just to refresh, these would not have been revered men. Tax collectors are never revered men in any culture. Nobody likes having their earned money taken away from them. But inside of this first century context, these tax collectors would have been despised. Because when the Romans conquered the Jews... They then employed the fellow Jewish people to take from their peers taxes that, that would go to fund the brutal Roman rule. And so they're not liked. It would be like a terrorist organization coming in here and conquering us and then employing a few of you to go around this neighborhood and take people's money to fund a regime that is oppressing them. There's not much to like in that. And on top of that, these, these tax collectors are corrupt. They're making a good living out of this because they're crooked. They are charging more taxes and skimming it off the top for themselves. There is not much to like there. And so just that face value here. If you saw a Pharisee and you saw a tax collector, you would think that the Pharisee would be entitled to God's blessing and favor. And you think that the tax collector would be entitled to wrath and punishment. Nobody would probably argue against that, but Jesus does what he always does. He does with these, with these parables, he flips our understanding on its head. Absolutely flips our understanding, and Jesus in here is re-emphasizing what the Lord has already spoken to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel. This is what God speaks to Samuel. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And friends, this is the distinctiveness of Christianity. God's care for your broken heart. Every other religion and every other social theory is about people changing their actions. It is about behavioral modification. But Christ wants your hearts. It's about coming and recognizing your brokenness. Your ability not to get drunk is not what's going to fix you. All of your addictions, all of your sins, all of your shortcomings in life are because your heart is deceitful and crooked. You're broken. And when Christ comes, he remedies the problem by giving us a new heart. And if we don't have that, we will continue to move from vice to vice. All the stuff in your life that you wish was different is not the root of the problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so as good as this Pharisee looks, God knows different. And as corrupt as we may think this tax collector might seem, God knows different because he knows his heart. And this Pharisee displays two worthy attitudes that I think are important for us to list and important for us as Christians to display in our lives. Now notice that the Pharisee and the, and, the, and the tax collector, they approach the temple and they have two different kind of strategies. The Pharisee walks straight up to the temple and stands by himself and prays. But what does the tax collector do? It says he stays at a distance. He stays at a distance and lifts up his prayer and he can't even look to the heavens because of his unworthiness. 
And he shouts out, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in this, this tax collector displays this all-important quality that all of us as Christians should be marked by, and that is humility. He is humble before God. He is modest in his stature. He puts himself on the low end of his own importance. The tax collector, look, he would not have been revered in that culture, but he certainly would have wealth and power. He would have power through the government and wealth through his crookedness. There would be an easy case to build that this guy could gain some sort of high inflated view of himself. But the tax collector knows something about himself that the Pharisee doesn't. He knows that he's broken and he knows that he's corrupt. He knows his heart and it makes him go low in front of the Father. And in doing so, he models for us the second worthy attitude, this attitude of submission. As he pleads with God, he submits to his authority. Have mercy on me, Father, a sinner. He is begging God to show him mercy because he knows the condition of his heart. He knows that he's a sinner. And that is the single biggest difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows he doesn't deserve God's mercy, but he is begging him that he needs it. The Pharisee checks all the boxes when we would look at a person of what God might expect, but one, his heart. And the tax collector would not be confused for a holy man, but what he has right is he demonstrates the kind of attitude that Jesus wants for us, humility and submission. He understands his heart. And then Jesus says this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This man was saved because of his humility, because of his submission to God, because in God's eyes, it isn't about your appearances, it's not about your actions, and it's not about your deeds, it is about your heart. And that's it. And I think this parable resonates so well in my heart as I read this, because I think that it speaks directly to an issue that plagues God's people. Our culture is very keen on dividing people into classes. We have social classes, we have uh, financial classes, we have uh, white collar, blue collar. We, ha we have this tendency to group people together based upon our demographics, our finances, our morality, our color, and many, many other things. And there is a systematic issue with the fact that dividing people creates a belief that one group or one person's or one class is superior than the next. And here's the thing that stinks about this. It bleeds into the church. Absolutely bleeds into the church. And look, there are definitely levels that are needed when we talk about governments and operations. We respect our bosses, our supervisors, governors, and, and senators. But when we know Christ, when we know Christ, we understand what he has done for us and who he is. There is one group of people that exist on this earth that is a sinner. There is no other classification of people. And whether you have missed that mark by a little or you have missed it by a vast canyon, you are still in the same boat as one another. Being a Christian is simply a recognition of your brokenness and your sin and turning from it as you receive God's grace, mercy, forgiveness, and salvation through His Son. And that same grace that he afforded to you is the same grace that even made you recognize the fact that your heart was corrupt. You have nothing in front of the Father. 
Your right standing does not depend upon you. It depends on Jesus. You being here today on Sunday does not earn you any other more brownie points with God. Nothing you will ever do will earn what he has done for you. Only Jesus does that for us. And so what happens inside the walls of the church is that as we begin to clean ourselves up in this mess, or I should say as God begins to clean the mess up in our lives, we begin to act like Pharisees. It is a natural condition of the heart if we don't check it. We start believing in our own goodness. We begin to have pride that I'm not struggling with these filthy sins that these other people are struggling with. And then Christ, as he somehow moves us out of the pitfalls of our lives, as we transcend above these things because of him, we then begin to praise our own good name rather than the name of God. And as we do this, it does not take us long I feel this myself, for us to start looking over at one another and saying, dude just needs to get his life together. If he would start doing this, he'd start doing this. If he wore a better clothes, and then we start to say, God, thank you for what I've done. Thank you for making me. And it's crazy. I mean, God would remind us by the psalmist in Psalm 119 that he says that your word is a lamp unto whose feet? My feet and a light unto my path. The gospel of Christ is a mirror that reflects the badness of my heart and sees the goodness of God. It is not a window in which you see the goodness of God and the badness of other people. It is a mirror. We do not get to lord over people's lives. Now, do we continue to let people in faith sin? Of course not. We are to speak with love and gentleness, truth and grace truth and grace, because we want to see people move away from sin because we know what? It destroys. It's destroyed our hearts. It will destroy them. And because we love their hearts, we love their hearts, that we want them to flourish in life in the creation that God has designed for them. And if we ever get to a place where we are more concerned about somebody's appearance and how they look and not looking at their heart and caring for it, we are becoming a Pharisee and we have to stop it. Look, I, I have a great vision. We have a great vision for this church. We are a family. We're a family in here, and we have family in that church, in that church, in this church, and we are better together. We're in this together. And friends, if, if you don't hear anything today, believe this. There is a day fast coming when your profession of Christ will cost you more than it will right now. There is a day that's coming when being a Christian will cost you more than it does right now. We will be like these first century Christians in which it will cost us everything. And honestly, that cost will be too great for some of you in this room. But for those of us who remain, you will find out quickly your need for one another. We have to stop these pharisaical attitudes that prevents us from mingling and concerning and caring for the hearts of people around us that don't look as clean as us or or even look holier than we are. I believe with all of my heart 
that as this culture continues to drift away from deep and meaningful relationships for just mere connection, and as we move away from intimacy and just to plain out information, there is a revival that is set for this people around this culture and this community. As the rates of depression and suicide and loneliness rise in every demographic across the board, the church has the answer. We possess inside of us the single most unifying force that this world has ever seen in the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of us. And it will be the unity of God's people, not the unification of our looks together, that will be a sweet aroma to the world around us. Our care and our compassion and our love for one another will be a safe harbor for those who are dying in this world. And none of it will happen if we continue to let our pride and our comparison and our self-justification get in our way and put up walls between us brothers and sisters. And so the single most important thing that I want you to learn from this parable is that your righteousness or your standing in front of the Father has nothing to do with your religious actions or your looks or how good you are at following a set of rules. It is about your heart and it is about your position of crying out for mercy from the Father. About nothing else. If you're in here today and you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years, you have no more righteousness today than you had on the first day. You have no more righteousness than you had on the first day. And the fact that your life looks cleaner is a testament to the Spirit of God working in your life, moving you from one degree of holiness into the next, driving you towards obedience, submission, and humility to His Word and His way. And so my challenge to us today is pretty simple. Can we get past ourselves and our pride and our comparison and our self-justification that we could bridge the gap between each other? We have tremendous pockets of deep relationships within this church. And the unfortunate things, we are still quite scattered. Might we do the simple things that we see in this tax collector? Humility and submission, understanding of our heart's corruptness, that we could move forward together. Let me just ask you this question. When's the last time that you invited somebody from this church out to lunch, to have coffee, to come over to your house, to do anything with? When's the last time you older Christians in here, have you grabbed somebody who's younger in the walk and had coffee with them? When is the, when is the last time that you who are young in your walk have spoken to an older Christian and say, hey, could we meet sometimes? When, when's the last time that we've introduced ourselves and concerned ourselves with somebody who looks different than us in this church? When's the last time that we've approached somebody who's new to this church and said, hello, how are you doing? Who are you? And look, I don't say these things to condemn you. I'm not trying, I'm guilty of this myself, but we have to identify a problem if we're ever going to fix it. And I know some of us miss the time and service where we had programmed in, where we greet one another, and I know that you wish that would be here. Um, but the reality is, you have all the time in the world at church to greet one another. Wouldn't it make more sense to people to feel more cared for if you greeted them because you weren't forced to, but because you actually cared about them? And so to conclude this, I just want us to not be too quick to dismiss the Pharisee as an arrogant fool that we don't see ourselves in. I think there is remnants of this man inside of my heart. And I think that it's probably true for a lot of us. 
And in your bulletin, I put a little graph down at the bottom that maybe as our last song plays, you could have some self-evaluation as you think about your heart and where you fit in this spectrum between a Pharisee and a tax collector. Hey, let's do our best to stop playing the comparison game. Let's, let's do our best to stop self-justifying. Let's do our best to lay down our pride that we could see one another with new eyes. That we would see not each other as different strangers that pass by us as ships in the night, but as a family of God committed to one another, to encourage one another, care for one another, boast with one another, to, 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 to serve with one another, and that your default positions would be that of sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. And whether you are 40 years into this or one day into it, we all can boast of the same righteousness in Christ. So, we're in this together. And because of Christ, we're better together. And uh, it's time that we start taking that to heart. Okay. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you today and uh, just confess with my heart my own brokenness here that, you know, Lord, I just, this parable is resonating in my heart. And, and Lord, I pray that you would use your words to, to move us into a place where we see our own sin, that we see sort of these attitudes that this Pharisee displays, that we might push away from these things because those are not the things that you would have for us, that we would draw closer to one another as a family, that we would learn to love our brothers and sisters through our differences and stages in life, that we would see each other uh, as Christ does. And so, God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your boldness not to let us settle with who we are. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who has done for us what we could not. Amen.